You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Thank you for joining me for our third installment of the Cool Collaborations Podcast. Vivian Twyford is my guest today, joining from halfway around the world in Wollongong, Australia. I sought out Vivian for this conversation, in part because I've heard my colleagues speak warmly about working with Vivian, and in part because she's truly a leader in the field of collaboration. Today, Vivian relates some of her experience starting business in the field of engagement before really putting her focus squarely on collaboration. We get the barest glimpse into her collaborative experience, and we touch on the five-step collaborative process laid out in her book, The Power of Co. I think you'll get the feeling, as I did, of Vivian's passion for collaborative process, and I appreciate her willingness to share her stories and experiences with me. Please enjoy our conversation. Let's maybe start off, if you would just be so kind, as to introduce yourself as if you were meeting somebody for the first time and, and sort of explaining a little bit about who you are. Sure. Uh, my name is Vivian Twyford. I've been living here in Australia for 50 years, but I was born in the UK and did some traveling as one did in the 60s before um, arriving in Australia. And I didn't mean to stay, but I did. i am always been fascinated by people and the way people react to things and people's behavior and what causes what. I have done a degree in sociology with a bit of psych thrown in, and that helps. But it's mostly been my practice of community engagement, public participation, a number of names for this uh, activity that I've become really involved with. And it's been a really fascinating journey over 30 plus years. It's led me to meeting interesting people, both here in North America, Europe, New Zealand, and to working in a field where you are always surprised and mostly positively surprised by the way people respond if you give them the opportunity to do so. And that's really where my focus has been. I've, I was a community engagement, a public participation consultant and trainer for a number of years, probably around 20 years. I then, after a while, my team and I thought that the work that we were doing was becoming a little commoditized and we wanted to investigate a little further about how we might take a particular area of collaboration and investigate it further. And we've done that for the last 10 years. This year, 2020, apart from being a most amazing year from almost every aspect, has also meant for me stepping back from day-to-day consulting work and uh, being a little bit more reflective and looking at what's next, um, what have I learned. So that's where I am right now, a semi-retired person who feels satisfied, probably not the right word, but certainly pleased with the life that I've led and still hope to be doing some interesting things into the future. A couple of things jumped out at me there that I wanted to follow up on. So one was you talked about being in a practice but you didn't say sort of how you got started into that practice. So what, what led you into the practice of community engagement or collaboration, if you will? Sure. I did a number of things, but probably a, a bit of a watershed was um, 
in the 1980s when a wonderful prime minister in Australia decided that more people should be encouraged to go to university and so made tertiary education free. Obviously some cost, but not tuition costs um, that might have uh, made it very difficult. I was at that time in my early 40s and I thought this was a fantastic opportunity. So I jumped in with both feet and did two degrees. I first did an arts degree and then a postgraduate degree in commerce. And that suddenly opened up some doors and made me realize that I had a brain. And I decided to, having jumped into education, I would now jump into business rather than employment. And I decided to start a business. I wasn't quite sure what kind of business to start, but I knew that communication and human behavior was where I was most interested. So I set up a business that I called Vivian Twyford Communication and started working in areas of training, public relations, general business communication. And that went fine. It was interesting. It was, it was a challenge. But at one particular time in that period, I was asked if I was interested in chairing a public meeting. And as all good consultants do, I said yes. And then thought, hmm, I wonder what, what this is going to be like, what, how this will be. And it turned out to be a public meeting where the local state government department of transport was talking about a problem situation and how perhaps um, there were different options to solve it and they wanted to discuss those with the community. And I chaired that meeting and I said, do you want a, re a report on that meeting? They said, yes. So I wrote one and the consultants that were doing it attached my report to theirs. And I, within a couple of weeks, I got a call with somebody saying, I didn't know you did um, that kind of work and would you do this and then I did another couple of jobs that were in that similar vein and it started to bring together for me how useful it would be if more government agencies or businesses generally who wanted to work with people rather than do things to people would in some way get together and have that kind of conversation that I had facilitated, chaired at that meeting. And that's really what got my brain ticking over. And when I saw a colleague of mine was going to a conference in Toronto in Canada, um, this would have been back in 1997, that was about public participation, I was thought, why shouldn't I put a trip to Toronto as I head back to Europe for a family visit? So I did. And all of a sudden, I found myself in a room with 300 or so other people who were all doing this stuff that had many different names, but in North America, it was called public participation. And the organization was the International Association for Public Participation. And that led me into um, working with professionals from around the world who were doing this work and learning from them and contributing to them. So when you talked about a little bit earlier about the process or parts of the process being commoditized, is that kind of a reflection of that sentiment of, of government or, or anybody really doing things to people instead of with them? Is that kind of, are those two connected? In a little bit of a way, yes. When I first started doing this work in Australia, it was called public consultation in 
well, community consultation probably in Australia and public consultation in New Zealand. And I was working on both sides of the Tasman at the time. And I think my ideal, which I was gaining from working with um, professionals around in other countries around the world, was that we would genuinely be inviting communities into some form of decision making, whatever it might be. But I think our clients that we might be working for who were themselves coming to terms with something new. In New Zealand, it was a legal requirement. In Australia, it was a recommendation to government and other organizations that they, their best practice might include this. But it was, I think they approached it in a way that was more around, and the, the subtext of anything they were doing was around saying, we are going to do this tell us if you don't like it. And therefore, it was for clients often more of a communication, public relations exercise that might be trying to, in really bad terms, say engineer consent for something rather than actually stepping in and opening up a conversation about different options and about how you might do something rather than what you were going to do and whether it was right or wrong. So that was always the tension in the work that we were doing. And I found that clients were looking at it in that commodity way that we need to do some communication, we might need to do some public information sessions, we might need to, but it was more about getting out with information and recognizing you probably would have to listen to something that people might have said to you, but did you really have to take any notice of it? Mm, question. Right. I've actually heard it cynically referred to as just a checkbox exercise. Yes, we yes we consulted. Check. We're we're good to go now. It doesn't matter what came from that. It just we we've done it and can show that we've done it. Yep. And the doing of it be an ad in the paper and a flyer and a couple of posters. <laughs> yes. When when you got involved with the uh, IAP two, which is the International Association of Public Participation. How did that all change? Was it just a, an exposure to a lot of experienced people doing it? Or how, how did that sort of come and influence your process going forward or your approach? It, it had a huge influence, first because of the opportunity of having conversations with people who were having different or similar experiences and similar frustrations and tensions. But then in, I think it was probably around 2000, 2001, there was a drive within the association to create training. And a group of people I was not involved initially put together, the, the, the aim was to overall was to design a five-day training program. And it might, it, first of all, had a very broad, some concepts about day one would be, day two would be, day three would be, etc. I think a group of probably four or five people got together and designed the first two days and they were delivered at a conference in Vancouver, I think in 2001. And I went to that conference and I took those two days worth of training. And again, that did switch on some lights for me. I did put my hand up and say, I'd be really interested in continuing to help design to make sure that the training was, in fact, able to be delivered in different cultures, not just in North America. And I think people were interested in, in that concept. And there were some others from South Africa and from 
New Zealand who wanted to get involved as well. So the train, to long story short, over the next few years, there was a five-day training program. And, and in 2013, I think that was um, reviewed, um, put to, made into a coherent um, five-day program. And I became a trainer of that program and brought that program to Australasia. And that, I think, to me, was the ideal way of working as a consultant and trainer because you were training something and you were telling people this was best practice. So you had to bring that way of working into your consulting practice. But your consulting practice was able to go back and inform the training because what the students mostly got out of training programs was not just the theory, but also the trainer's ability to turn that theory into stories of real practice. And I think that for over the next 10, 12 years, that, that, was, um, that changed my way of thinking and gave me lots of stories to tell, but lots of experiences to hone into. You went further than that, though, didn't you? You, you like in 2011, you wrote a book that kind of really focused on a particular portion of what IAP2 would call their spectrum. So can you tell me a bit about your book? Well, that, that was the second book that we wrote, actually. The first book was a little earlier, I think around 2006, where we wrote a book called Beyond Public Meetings. And that was a book about bringing some of that work that we'd been doing in training and consulting into a book form that perhaps might be useful in a different form from just a training program. So we wrote that and that was well received and gave us a little confidence in writing. But as I say, in between that 2006 writing of that book Beyond Public Meetings and 2011, when we wrote the book The Power of Co, we'd gone through this transition ourselves as a, as a company. We'd started to feel an element of discontent in that so often the briefs that we were responding to from clients were very defined. And instead of asking us for strategies to achieve an outcome that they were looking for, they were defining that we want three of those and four of those and, and any other ideas you might have. But it was, as I say, that, that sense that we were delivering commodities rather than strategies, which was not where we wanted to be. And in response to that, we did what we called an appreciative inquiry on ourselves. And as a small team of consultants, we interrogated each other to try and find out what had been our best experiences, what experiences could each of us bring to the table that had given us as consultants a sense of achievement, had given our clients something really valuable that they valued, and that had left communities, whatever the communities they might be, in a better situation. So that was quite an exercise over probably about a three or four month period as we, we really looked into our own practice. And that from that, we developed what we thought were the, the really essential pieces of good practice. And that developed into what we then called the power of co, which we thought reflected really good practice at the collaborate level on the spectrum. We recognized that that wasn't always going to be possible, but when you were working at the collaborate level on the spectrum, you were also, as we had been training and teaching people, you had elements of inform, 
consult, involve, as well as collaborate. So we felt that we could, with some authority, start talking about what it really takes to work with people rather than doing consultation to people. Do you have, in that process of building The Power of Co, and, and even the, the earlier book on Beyond Public Meetings, are there examples of collaboration that, that just spring to mind as kind of the textbook version of what collaboration should be? As I say, what we, what we developed in The Power of Co was a reflection of our practice. We created that from all the elements that we felt had delivered on those three key foundations, our satisfaction, clients' value, and community benefit. So what I can tell you, when there were many stories that came out of that activity, but the story that I was telling uh, predominantly that, had, that reflected those things for me was with a client in New Zealand. And that, had, that particular job had come about because in Auckland in New Zealand, they had traffic problems. Um, show me a city that doesn't have traffic problems, but there's was a traffic problem. Um, they had one key um, north to south highway that went right through Auckland, which geographically is a challenging um, area because there's lots of water and lots of bridges and lots of times you have to cross water. And this highway number one, which went north to south and was core to being able to travel up the North Island from bottom to top, as it went through Auckland, very often became a car park rather than a motorway. So it was how do we, how can we, how can we change that? And the Transport Authority had come up with a a western ring route that might take traffic around Auckland so there would be two north to south roads and that might alleviate some of the problems. And at the time, they felt the only way to be able to raise sufficient funds to build this would be to make it a tollway. And in New Zealand, the law at the time said that before the government could actually put in a tollway or or charge people for using roads, they had to get overall community consent to that idea. And so the transport agency was about to embark on probably the biggest community engagement or public consultation, as they called it, process that they'd ever got involved in, and they felt they needed someone to peer review it. So I got a call. I was actually in Holland at the time um, doing some work for uh, the United Nations on dams and development, and I got a call from somebody I didn't know in New Zealand saying, would you be prepared to peer review what we're doing? And as a good consultant, I said, I'd be very interested in that. Um, so I got a brief. I said, okay, this looks as though I would really need to come over. I don't think I can do that um, as a desk job. I think I need to come over and talk to people. I think it would take me this long. I think I could do it. And so they said, yes, please. So please come. So I did go and I spent a few days there and talked to people. And I think to their surprise, and as a, res- as a result of the questions that I was asking them, I said, look, I really don't think what you're planning to do is going to work for you. It's going to cost you a huge amount of money. It's not going to help your reputation. And I'm not sure it's going to get you the answers that you want. And that made them go, oh, 
Um, then they said, well, okay, well, what would you do? If you don't think what we're planning to do is the right thing, what would you do? And so I stepped into that situation, which I then spent probably the next year um, working on ways to really engage the Auckland community in the whole issue of roads, tolling, how you pay for roads, which was absolutely fascinating and I really enjoyed. Um, and in the end, they decided that they would build the, uh, the new road, the Western Ring Route, but they wouldn't toll it. They would find other ways to fund that road building project, which now in 2020 is complete, has taken fairly long time to do because it involved tunneling and some really major engineering works, but it is not a toll road and it is now very well used. So in that project, how was it different from what you ended up doing? How was that different from what was being proposed? So can you give an example or, or an illustration of what was different? What they were planning to do, which to my mind, just on a common sense basis, was not a good thing. They were putting together a 24-page booklet, um, full color, being their justification for building the road and tolling it. And they were planning to put that into, uh, I can't remember the number of households, but they were at the time there were 1.5 million people living in Auckland and they were going to put one of these 24-page brochures into the letterboxes of every house in Auckland. And that to me seemed nonsensical. How many people were actually going to read a 24-page brochure, uh, assuming they even got it, and what would it do to the reputation of that agency if in fact thousands of these brochures were seen all over the streets because they were shoved into letterboxes un uninvited and people would probably just throw them away. So that number one, I felt that was not useful. Surely there must be other ways of communicating to people, but not communicating it as this fait accompli, you've just got to tell us whether you think it's a good idea to toll it or not, but what are the problems that we are facing that we would like you to help us with? And so we spent some time talking about what they really needed to know, what would be useful in the way of public input. And if you simply go out and ask a bunch of people whether uh, when you build a new road, they're prepared to pay for it by putting money in a, into a box or however you were going to manage the tolling. And at that time, tolling technology was not very well advanced and it was likely to be cash boxes that you put money into. If you ask people whether they would like you to do that, the chances are they're going to say no, because it's not a question that they've got to think about the tensions. They have to just say, do I want to pay money to drive on a road? No, I don't. So I couldn't see that there was any point in posing that question because you, pre you knew already what the answer was going to be and was it going to make a difference to them? No. They were if they really felt that it was a good idea, they were going to do it anyway. So I, we spent some time trying to work through what were the tensions and it was about really were people prepared not just to pay for using a road but for saving time? So did people really think they were going to save time? Was this new road going to be useful? How was it going to help them? What difference was it going to make? So we had to really start thinking about how did we not just send out brochures that would simplify a complex message, but how can we bring together some people and really inform them and find out then whether or not 
they felt that there was going to be value in this road and whether or not they at the end of that felt that paying for it through tolling might be worth doing. So we had a strategy that said, yes, we're going to ask everybody in Auckland because that's important and we will do that by a very a, a different, possibly some, some telephone surveys and probably there will be brochures out there with a survey on it that people can respond to. But in particular, we want to bring together, I think in the end we decided 400 people would be a good number and we wanted to have time with them. And so we divided Auckland into quite naturally four areas. We held a, a um, two sessions in each of those four areas. The first session was about providing information and allowing people to talk about it so that they spent that first session learning about what was proposed, why it was proposed, what it was trying to do. It um, had people on tables, each table with a facilitator. And after the information was given, they would they could start talking about it amongst themselves. They could ask questions. There were subject matter experts around the room who could come and give answer questions. And at the end of that two-hour session, they were asked to go away and explain what they had learned to at least three people in their family, at work, neighbors, whoever, but to try and explain what they thought they had learned about so that they could see the gaps in their own understanding by trying to explain it. And then we asked them to come back two weeks later and to ask all those questions that had come up from trying to explain it to other people and get more answers, have more conversations, and then complete the survey form that we were going to be using, um, which was much more around what do you think the value will be? What do you understand this road to do? What value will it be to you? What do you think is the best way of paying for it? Is tolling one of those, um, is, is tolling away? So it was very much a conversation. And at the end, they were able to compare the answers to the survey questions from that group, from the telephone survey group, and from the those people who responded without that kind of conversation or understanding just by reading a some information or listening to a radio ad or whatever. And it was a very interesting outcome that in the very general response, you did get very polarized responses. One group saying, for God's sake, stop asking questions, just get on and build the road. We don't care how you do it, just do it. You're the government, that's your job. And other people saying, you dare to put a toll on a road that I'm going to use, you'll never see yourself in government again. So there, it was very polarized. But when you looked at those people who had more information, they were much more centered in their, their mm, yes, this is a complex issue. Yes, we can see there is value to it. Yes, we think the road is a good idea. Not sure how you should pay for it. Not sure that tolling is a good idea. Think you should go and look for other things. And it was really interesting to look at the different views that people had. And in the end, the uh, government decided that they did need to build the road. The road was going to be valuable, but they probably needed to find other ways to pay for it. So, uh, you know, there's two pieces there that, that I think are quite interesting. And one is the, the notion of putting the people in the room in a space where they're, they're almost decision makers. They're, they're not authorized to make the decision, obviously, but they're having to represent the people that they talked to. I thought that was, that's kind of an interesting way of having participants work in a collaborative setting because then 
they have a different mindset when they go out to speak to people that's not positional. I kind of like that. But the other piece that jumps to mind or a question that comes to mind actually is what did the client, your client think of the process, say at the beginning versus the end? Was there a change in how they thought about uh, engagement? Did they become believers? I'm using air quotes, but are they, did they become believers in collaboration? It's interesting that you should ask that as of now. When I retired from work, my delightful partners um, went out and asked a number of clients, uh, and previous employees, people who um, had been part of the journey that we had all taken um, and asked them to just video a short message of good wishes or whatever they wanted to say on my retirement, if you like. And one of them was the client for that particular job. And he said that I had been one of the most annoying consultancy (laughs) because when I was asked to do this peer review, I came and asked heaps of very difficult questions that he didn't know how to answer. And then when they were stupid enough to employ me, I again kept on asking challenging and difficult questions and put them in situations that were not very comfortable. But on reflection, and this is now, what, 2006, 2007, so it's quite a long time ago, he has now moved from that transport agency into a completely different field. He runs a a water company and is much more involved in customers and working with customers. And that vision of genuine participation by customers, clients, stakeholders in the work of the business, he has taken forward and he thanked me for that vision because it's made a difference to him. I can see how that like that kind of feedback is it's really gratifying for people who work in the field to hear the kind of, you know, influence I guess that their work has had in in changing other people's minds but also in getting big projects done. Do you often see or have you seen it translate from say decision maker to decision maker like in in the case of some of your clients are they telling other people that you're going to have a problem if you do it you know, that way you need to maybe do something more collaborative or more this way. Do you ever see any of that kind of referral? I think we do in small ways. I think that particular example that I've talked about is unusual and and it's that unusual that it's very memorable. <laughs> yeah. But I think one of the issues that we face in this business is that what we're advocating, that is really listening to other people, uh, letting go of some control of decision-making and doing different is very challenging for people whose whole business identity is based on having answers, knowing the answer, knowing things, being the expert. Um, That's what's got them to their leadership position in many instances. And that's what they know. And asking them to be different, to think differently, to act differently, to not be in such control of everything that they're trying to work on is very challenging. And I think that's still one of the biggest issues facing the people doing things more collaboratively. I think it's a shame because I think what we're facing in the world today is more and more complexity and 
when you're facing complexity, you can't continue to do just logical, technical problem solving because it just doesn't work. You don't have all the answers to get you from where you are to where you want to be. You don't even know what perhaps where you want to be looks like. So this uncertainty, this working in uncertainty, this being willing to put out to everybody, look, this is the problem. Do you agree this is the problem? How might we solve it together is not an easy one. It seems like you know this might be a good place to reflect back on the power of co because there's a five-step kind of process laid out in the book. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't didn't point to you know those steps. So I was wondering if you could you know sort of touch on the different the different steps and kind of in a you know sort of a quick way sort of describe what they are. Sure. The power of co itself, as I said, came from our thinking about our good practice or our best practice over the years. I think that, and we did that in 2010, 2011, which is now 10 years ago. So, you know, things do change and the way you think changes and the way we have been able to help clients, I think, changes too. And we came up with five things that we felt had been necessary. First of all was that the client had been committed to working with their community, that the idea of doing this was sufficiently strong within the client organization that they were committed to doing it. They might not have known how to do it. They might have wanted support for it, but they were committed to a different approach from the one that they usually used. The second thing was that it was really important for the decision, the problem that was being faced and tackled and the decision that had to be made in order to resolve it was really clear because so often in the work that we had done with engaging communities was often more of a marketing job than a consultation job. It was really the client saying, we're going to do this, tell us if you don't like it. And then they were quite surprised when the people who came to whatever they were running came to tell them they didn't like it. Because the people who did like it thought, well, you're going to do that anyway, so we don't need to engage with you. So to have someone who was really willing to spend time on looking at the problem from all the perspectives was another important aspect. And then the process itself that one used to engage, it also had to be something that the people who were going to get engaged, whether it be the client themselves or the stakeholders or whoever, that they had some say in how they were engaged and what the engagement process might look like. We came to refer to it as they needed to have their fingerprints on the process. And only when those three things were in place, the commitment, the clarity on the on the problem and, and the agreement on how we're going to work together, were you likely to be able to step into that co-creation, that co-design, that co-creation of solutions to this tricky problem that you were tackling. And then the last part, which often people get excited about, oh, let, here's some solutions, let's, let's um, answer our question with these solutions. But to me and to us at the time, it seemed really important that there should be a last stage, which we called co-delivery, because the solutions in themselves needed application and implementation for them to actually solve the problem. And one needed some time and space to apply them and to evaluate 
um, and be sure that they were not just creating another problem. While solving one, they were creating another. So that last co-delivery. So we created this, these things, these necessary things. And we made a mistake, I think, at the beginning in, in making them in an order, in, in a sort of, in, in a line. And you had to do this and then this and then this and then this. And we worked out really that collaboration doesn't work in a, in a neat way like that. And you can start anywhere and you have to go everywhere. The book was written around those five things with a bit of a preface about power because we felt that really this whole thing is about power whether it be engagement or collaboration it is who has who has power and how do they use that power um, and who is powerless and how do they get some so we spent some time thinking about that and then from there that book went out some people loved it some people are still using it as a as a textbook for for university courses. We use we use it in trainings that we do for clients. But a, somebody rang us in early this year and said he'd by chance picked up the Power of Co and read it, and his organisation was in desperate need of a different approach. They've been trying to achieve a restructure and a different way of working together internally within the organization for five years. They tried many things and none of them had been successful. And he would really like to try to use the power of co and how could he do that? So that was perhaps the most, that, that's what we would have loved to have happened from day one of publishing the power of co. But 10 years later, it did happen and we are now working with that client organization to help them apply the power of co within their organization. Seems like the whole process as you've laid it out sort of starts off with an easing into essentially a group dynamic and then building into a joint sort of understanding of, of the problem. And, and I think you've laid out really well how well or how important that step is in the whole thing. And that sort of after you've gotten over that piece, if you if you can master the the problem, then the steps after that become a little easier. So is that that be a fair assessment to say it's a a bit of a build up to a crescendo, and then becomes a little bit easier after that once you have some of that sort of joint uh, understanding. Yes, I think those that step of committing to working with others, and then having an experience of working with others where. You get a chance to put your own perspective as clearly as you can, but you also hear other perspectives. And we have a number of different templates and activities that help people do that, that you not only come away with a better understanding of the problem and a bit of an idea of where you're heading, but you've also started to build some relationships with people that perhaps you've never respected or understood before. Both for both the client and and those people, those stakeholders are in who are in the room. What's the most surprising thing that's come from writing the power of co in the years since? I think seeing people recognise that there is another way of working that you can by committing by co defining the problem by co-designing the process, getting people to get their fingerprints on how they're going to work together of then co-creating solutions that everybody can see will not necessarily get to the answer, but 
the experimentation in, in co-creation that you try this and does it take you in that direction? Yes, it does. Do more. Does it take you in the, no, it doesn't. Let's don't do that one. And keep experimenting, trying different ways to get you to that light on the hill and then being able to deliver those solutions and actually see change. That process starts to make sense to people. What we've heard from clients who have really embraced this is that what they got out of it mostly was when they first started to collaborate, they'd get in a room and they'd sit and look at each other and they'd say, well, what are we going to do now? And often it would be argument rather than working together. But the power of code gives them a bit of a process, get something, some steps to take that would lead them into a different way of working together. You know, I, th- I think we could probably spend, you know, quite a bit longer talking and digging into the, some of the details, but I want to want to kind of start to wrap it up. And I'm thinking I have a couple of rapid fire questions to end up with, if that's, if that's okay with you, if you're game. Sure. So do you have a favorite collaboration quote or a saying even, something that you refer back to around collaboration? Now, you've put me on notice for that one. I can't think immediately of a quote. Oh, maybe I can. There's a Margaret Mead quote. And I know that I think it's the first quote in the book, in The Power of Co. Uh, Margaret Mead, never that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. You know, it's funny that you've quoted that particular quote. When I first started with uh, the local government here as a, as a biologist, I actually had that quote posted on my bulletin board and had it up for many, many years. I think I still have it around here somewhere, that that piece of paper so i think that one that one encapsulated but there's one other that i think is also useful by um from elizabeth moss Cantor, who wrote many uh, management texts and she says change is disturbing when it's done to us it's exhilarating when it's done by us those are both fantastic quotes is there a book that you suggest that everyone reads and it doesn't have to be collaboration focused, just a, just a book in general that is kind of your, kind of a go-to book, a, gift, a book you give as a gift more often than not. Yes, there is one. It's by an Australian author called Hugh Mackay, and it's called Why Don't People Listen? I do believe that listening, while we've all done courses on listening, while we all know that listening is important, Real listening is really challenging and difficult. And I believe we none of us do it well enough. We none of us concentrate on it. We all need to be better at listening. And I think that um, Hugh Mackay um, has really pulled together 10 rules of listening. So I can commend that book. Excellent. It's, I think it's way back in 1974 that it was published. It may not be in print, but if you can get a hold of a copy, it's worth it. Excellent. Well, I'll, I'll see what I can find and maybe I'll put a, a link in our show notes for anybody who's, who's looking for it. I just wanted to say thank you for your time today and for your being willing to share your experience and your expertise. So thanks very much. Well, thank you for the opportunity to do this. I've enjoyed really thinking again about what we have worked on over the last 10 years and why I believe in it. I'm sorry not to be actually doing it anymore, but I want to support it and hope that it does help people as we continue to face complex social problems in all areas of our lives. Thank you very much. Thanks, Scott. 
What a wonderful conversation with Vivian. So many places we could have continued to explore and discuss. One of the ideas that stood out to me today was our discussion about how complex problems can't be solved by simply applying logic. As Vivian mentioned, you often need the perspectives of many people just to properly understand the problem you're facing long before you ever get into any kind of a solution. I quite like the example she relates of the Auckland Road Project. The process she used to have participants test their message with their friends and colleagues was brilliant as a way to expand awareness and understanding, but also as a way to bring participants much closer to the decision. I also appreciate the kind of shift in approach that resulted in her client as a result of collaborating with people. Thanks, Vivian, for sharing your experience with me today. And thank you for joining in to listen. Happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.